You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to the 602 Club, and what a feeling it is to be back. I'm just so excited to have with me two of my favorite maniacs. The first, Christy Morris. Christy, it's so good to have you back here after Star Wars Celebration. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been a little while, uh, but you know, definitely here dancing like a maniac. Excellent, excellent. And always dancing like a maniac, and fresh off his appearance here, with Top Gun, the one and only John Mills. We know I'm not a dancer. I'm the comic. Y'all know that. I'm the guy getting up there telling the terrible jokes. That's my uh, bag. We'll catch you, know you one day. You know, it's <laughs> one day. true. It is true, because they are terrible. So, yeah. Oh, hey. yeah. They make me laugh. That's all that matters. <laughs> hey, I man, they made Richie laugh, and that's, that's all that matters, too. That so. is all that matters. Um, well, we are going to be talking about, we decided... In our Book of Boa Fett episode, because Jessica Biel is in that show, unfortunately deceased now, uh, Twi'lek, Jessica Biel. So far uh, as we know. The yeah, character, know, not Jessica. Maybe yeah. she survived. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but we decided we'd talk about Flashdance because John and I hadn't seen it. So we are going to be doing that this week here on the 602 Club. So buckle in. Before we get into the show, just want to say thank you to everybody who's listening. We really do appreciate that you spend time with us each and every week. If you are listening to the show and you're not subscribed, please do Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then if you're on a podcast platform that allows you to rate or review us, please do that too. So Spotify allows you to rate podcasts. So that's a great place. And it's an excellent place actually to get podcasts. The, their, their look and feel is so good. I mean, it's, it's my mm -hmm. favorite actually when it comes to that. Uh, and if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can give us not only a rating, but a written review. We'd really appreciate that because it does help people find the show there. So do all that for us. We really appreciate it. And of course, uh, we'd love it if you would follow us on social media. So go over to Twitter and follow the 602 Club. And then uh, we're on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. You can also find the entire network online at Trek. Dot fm and of course we're on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm there's also listeners only discussion group where you can join listeners from all over the world and talk about all the different shows we're doing it and again you can find that there on facebook and last but not least i do want to say thank you to everybody who supports the network through patreon because without listeners just like you we wouldn't be able to make this network happen it's been a rough few years, and so we'd really appreciate you going over to patreon.com slash trekfm and becoming part of our team. There's just no way with all the podcasts we're doing that we can do this without listeners just like you. So again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Okay, so really interesting to me, this movie, and John, you and I hinted at this a little bit. 
uh, when we were talking about Top Gun Maverick was the idea that this movie launches some of the biggest producers of the 80s and 90s. Oh, yes. And that is Simpson and Bruckheimer, yep. uh, who very influential and, of course, paved the way for movies like Footloose or Purple Rain or Top Gun. And so I, I was really interested in this idea of, like, if this doesn't hit, how many movies do we not get made possibly because this movie, like, becomes this kind of, like, cultural touchstone, which is so interesting. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood is an imitation machine, so undoubtedly it accelerates the process. I don't think that it... I don't think if Flashdance doesn't happen that... The, I mean, it's the MTV generation is coming up. This is inevitable in a large sense. And uh, I think that Flashdance is just the one... Like, there's always one that just taps that coming wave like just gets right there as the wave is rising and you know has to do it well has to know how what it's doing in terms of editing things together and i think probably what it does is because it's it's just the fact that it is such a monster hit i think it has an influence no matter what when it comes out like let, let's just say flash dance comes out but it's not the it's not the number three box office hit of the entire year, which is still mind blowing when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the year that Return of the Jedi came out, so it was it, the the ranking I believe uh, is Return of the Jedi, the Oscar winning Terms of Endearment, which like Return of the Jedi had you know three hundred something million dollars, Terms of Endearment was number two at a hundred million dollars. So keep in mind that disparity right there. But then Footloose, uh, not Footloose, I'm sorry, <laughs> Flashdance is right on its tail. And um, that's, you know, I, I think that just kicks it into overdrive. It just becomes suddenly, every, I mean, you mentioned Footloose, and obviously that's still in my brain, and Top Gun, but Rocky Four goes down this road. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, yeah, and it yeah, does. it is, it is, this is, this is that super montage music video marketable entity where it at the end of it it doesn't matter whether the movie's good anymore it just matters whether it entertains like it just it's it's that pulse of information that gets put out there with the right soundtrack and boom you got a hit so movies become a lot cheaper to make in that circumstance too yeah, well, and I mean, and speaking of Footloose, I mean, think about the whole montage of feet at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It yep. definitely they're all related, and this is kind of just one step in the stepping stones of all the other similar films that then come after it. Um, but I mean, I do think that it's a combination of striking while the iron is hot. Um, MTV had just started in 81 and then this came in 83. So it's already great timing wise with that. But then being a little bit more like a music video itself with the way it was edited and the focus more on the dance than anything else. Um, I think that also really helped it get the notoriety that it does. Yeah. I mean, it is. It almost feels like this movie could start with an MTV production, you right? Know? Mm-hmm. Um, because that it really does have that feel um, of a music video, which makes sense because the director Adrian Lane 
was actually a that was what he was. He was a commercial director, basically. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. a lot like Tony Scott directing Top Gun, you get this kind of like commercial almost for different types of 80s dance. Uh, and I was really interested, uh, John, and I, you know, I, I know you're more familiar, especially with the directors of that time period, even than I am. But like David Cronenberg turned this down and so did Brian De Palma. Okay. Which, what kind of movie would this been if either of them had directed? Uh, it would have been a horror show if either one of them had directed it. I don't. Brian De Palma with a female-led film about. Uh, I mean, that horrifies me. And David Body Horror Cronenberg with Flashdance. I mean, no, thank you very much. Thank you for going with Adrian Line. I'm happy with that. That's fine. Um, and Line is not a director that really I think is. As well, like his legacy hasn't held up quite the same way that I think people thought it would have. But mm-hmm. now Cronenberg, Cronenberg with Flashdance, that, no, that hurts my head to think what that would be like. I mean, this is not taking anything away from these guys, but like De Palma, you know, in the hands of De Palma, this becomes a little bit, um, I don't I, like I can't think of the exact word for it, but less comfortable. You know, I feel like line it brings a very really kind of yeah. dark and moody. And, um, you know, I, I think. A lot more serious, right? Like, I, th- I feel like, yeah. it would be a much more serious take, whereas this movie, I think, is so lighthearted, like it every uh, everywhere we are in this movie is like seedy and terrible. And yet somehow you know, it doesn't feel like that at all. This feels like this, you know, I I, I don't know, like kids version. Like a little uh, more yeah, of a comedy yeah. or a, a yeah, lighter exa- look yeah. at the situation. I mean, it takes everything yeah. more lighthearted, even though it's, it, I mean, they're all in these terrible places. Yeah, with Brian De Palma, it's going to feel dark and seedy and dirty and all the things that that part of life actually is. Whereas line just makes it feel like, eh, you know, it's like one step away from a Disney princess movie. Right. Like, it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not that. I- I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. I I would be extremely interested to find a bar where avant-garde dancing would be a popular thing for drunk off-duty steel workers to be watching. I was watching. wondering that, too. I was wondering <laughs> that, that, too. That seems yeah. kind of like... Hey, hey, Bill, we just were a 12 hour shift at the mill. Let's go down and watch some of avant garde dancing with uh, some hamburgers and beers. Like, it doesn't really blend when you think about it. That it's, yeah. it's very odd. And I, maybe that's, maybe that's why the movie winds up, um, resonating with audiences beside, you know, I mean, obviously it's the, it's the style and everything, but maybe there is something where it's like, in a sense, it's a bit ennobling about, uh, you know, the blue collar society that in movies is treated a little more dirtily and shabbily and and stuff like that. There's a little more of a presumption of class that isn't typically reserved for storylines set in parts of the world like this. You know, mm-hmm. like De Palma would have come at it probably a little more like Coal Miner's Daughter or something. Yeah. So. Well, and, and I will say um, in defense a little bit of line i feel like when i looked at the other 
works that he did, it made more sense as well with having done things like Fatal Attraction and Indecent Proposal, which that one I saw recently for the first time myself, um, which are a similar style, I feel like, with the cinematography and stuff, especially with like Indecent Proposal, um, and kind of hit on some of the same topics. Um, although it's a little bit different background story, it's still got that piece of drama to it. Uh, and actually, as long as we're talking about his other works, he very controversially did what wound up being a very, uh, nonetheless, beautifully made adaptation of Lolita with uh, Jeremy Irons. Mm. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was Lying that did that. Yeah, it was. And, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. It, it and, was, and he did Unfaithful, too, with uh, uh, Diane Lane. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he ha- he definitely has a type of film. Yeah, I was like, this is yep. a trend. Which, <laughs> yeah. which is overly sexual. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so, um, and then he did Deep Water. Uh, so, which, uh, is, um, the mo- movie that, uh, just came out with, uh, on, like, Hulu with Ben Affleck and, um, Anna de Armas, uh, wait, so- Adrian Lyne did that? Yes, yes. I, ne- I never saw it because, wait. I haven't seen it either. So, I haven't either. Really? But, huh. Yeah. But wow. again, he seriously has a type of film. Yeah. Wow. He, he's definitely pigeonholed as a director. So, well- We've talked a little bit about this idea, but I mean, this this movie kind of becomes a t- cultural phenomenon in the sense that the music from the movie, I mean, the sweatshirt from the movie, the dancing, my sister as a as a like four or five year old had the maniac sweatshirt uh, and it, it said maniac on it. You know, mm-hmm. my sister was a bit of a dancer around the house and, and, and a bit of a maniac. So. It fit perfectly. Um, but I mean, this this movie just kind of became this thing. And it, it's interesting because the the critical reviews for this movie are terrible. It's like in the 30s. Mm-hmm. But people just, I it, it, almost like a music video, it just caught on and became this thing. Well, and before we get too far then into that, too, I wanted to just briefly mention again, I found out just in passing on that episode we did about Book of Boba Fett that neither one of you had seen Jennifer Beale in Flashdance and uh, that I was, you know, just dropping it like, oh, everyone's seen that. And y'all were both like, no. And I'm going, wait, what? Okay, so <laughs> we need to go back and adjust your film history and put this in there because it's a classic. So I may be well, showing their cards, now. but I mean, it's, you know, it, it's shelved. I've seen it. So, so I, yeah. Yeah. So, but for me, this was actually something that I had seen once again, you know, in, in the file of things, Christie saw way too young. Um, although I saw the edited version edited for TV. Um, I think I even saw it by accident the first time or something like that. And then afterward, it was something that my dad had on and was like, look, but the dancing, it's so artsy. And now as an adult, I'm like, it was not artsy. <laughs> you know, like it, it is. But I just thought it was really funny that that's how I first got introduced to this movie. And then it's been a classic for me ever since I was young. And that that's cool. I mean, I can just. I, I can assure you that this never would have been in rotation. At, uh, like the music, you couldn't escape the music. 
Right. I, I, I know the soundtrack like the back of my hand because like you just couldn't leave it anywhere. It was all over the radio and uh, it, it was it was just constant to the point where I still have that sort of knee jerk. Like when I hear the song Maniac, I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. This song again. Like it's it was <laughs> that saturated. Um, and so I think that I think honestly the the soundtrack winds up becoming a huge factor in sort of that feedback loop because even if people miss it in the theater but you know striking while the iron is hot sort of thing this is right as VHS is showing up so you hear a soundtrack and then you see it in the video store and you go oh okay right that's the one that that song is from I might as well catch it so like that creates that beautiful marketing feedback loop that you can't escape from and so that I think contributes to it as well because it, you know, 83, it's going to hit video in what, 84? That's just right in time for home purchase and the rise of uh, more, you know, uh, uh, ubiquitous video rental shops everywhere and stuff like that. Your kids are going to get their video card. Their folks are going to go out. They're going to be like, yeah, he, 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 we can rent Footloose. We don't have to go back in the weird room to get this one. We can watch this. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that sort of thing. So. You mean they could go and rent. Flashdance. Flashdance. Oh, gosh. Why do I keep saying Footloose? <laughs> I mean, because they're so why similar do I keep films, saying you know, that? except they're for the dance movies. Movies. It's not. It's yeah. not even <laughs> registering in my brain. I'm so sorry. Like, seriously, it's, okay. it's just like lodged in there. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I but can't no, it's it. like uh, it sort of how you're joking, John. Like Showgirls was out on the shelf, not in the weird back room, too. Yeah, although yeah, yeah. that's a movie that I can. I can what's it? okay? So long as you bring up Showgirls, because this was on my brain the entire time I was I watching. I thought that would be a sentence I was so would hear. Right. Okay. <laughs> since you brought up Showgirls, since, since you brought up Showgirls, first off, Showgirls, there was like the R-rated version that Blockbuster rented. It didn't rent the NC-17 version. Yeah. But Showgirls is essentially the same movie in a lot of ways. Um, And they're both written by Joe Esterhaus, who was both a a blessing and a blight on Hollywood for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, what what is really interesting is is the parallels between the two of them. I at least got through this movie, though. I at least watched it from beginning to end. Showgirls is a movie where I've never in my entire life been able to watch more than like seven to nine minutes of it. And I'm like, I just can't take this. Like, And I mean, I watch Neil Breen movies. I've watched Miami Connection so much, I have the soundtrack on Spotify saved so that I can listen to it every so often. I have a Star Trek V poster on the wall behind me right now. I'm gesturing toward it. Showgirls, I just can't even get through. And I think that at least speaks to the fact that Line as a director and the producers, because you have not just Simpsons, Bru- Simpson Bruckheimer, but you have uh, Goober and Peters, who six years later unleash Batman upon the world. Um, they, you know, they, they obviously have enough uh, control over the material that I think it would be a very interesting experiment for somebody to take, you know, th- this, you know, these are both Esther house scripts, essentially watch flash dance and watch Showgirls and see the difference between a director who is, you know, a bit more restrained and a little bit more focused and a little, a little bit more 
um, under control because, you know, he's obviously he's just coming up and everything. And then Verhoeven, who's just given carte blanche. And you can just see how script ideas can just go horribly wrong, you know, mm-hmm. depending on whose hands they're in. Yeah. No, I'm well, glad you uh, said that. Sorry, I'm interested to hear just for you guys, because it, we've talked a little bit about the idea that the the movie does have that very 80s feel in the sense that it it's montage you know, uh, it feels like a music video. So what did you feel about the actual story that the movie is telling, which is, you know, you've got this woman who's working as a construction worker and a welder by day and a dancer by night uh, at this very interesting bar uh, where avant-garde dancing, like you said, John, is very popular with the blue-collar crowd, which seems interesting. Uh, didn't, uh, I, you know, I'm surprised that's the case. Um, I don't, I don't know, you know, anyway, just never thought that would be possible. Uh, but this movie proved me wrong. And then her dream is to be a professional dancer, you know, whether or not that actually means ballet or just a dancer in general. Uh, um, but the academy she wants to be at definitely looks like a ballet school. Um, I don't know. What did, what did you guys think? John? No, I see the okay. floor. I see the floor <laughs> to you, Christy. So, uh, honestly, that was my favorite thing about this movie is that I feel like the bottom line of it is it's a story about having hope that no matter where you come from, dance doesn't have to be something that you had to be born rich to do. That you know, she proves that somebody who's a nobody with no money and no training, formal training, could come in and just have natural talent and get an audition and then actually get um, accepted, um, which I thought was a really beautiful thing. And, and I love the way that that hope combines with the song What a Feeling, because it just has this crescendo then in the end for me every time. And that's why I keep rewatching this movie is because they show that although it is kind of weird, I guess thinking um, without any bias about the kind of dancing they're doing at Mobby's bar, um, they're showing that there is a difference between how her friend Jeannie for a while goes to the strip club where she's, you know, or, or I guess I would say nude bar um, and is just laying on a table versus these women who are actually really putting some talent into something and they come up with costumes and choreography and lighting and it's not just a job, you know? And so I, I, I had more respect for them because of that and that, you know, I like how her boss questions her about it and she's like, girls got to make a living, you know, I'm, 18 and I live on my own. So what else am I going to do when I don't know, you know, have like a, a degree or a a formal skill other than welding and dancing? Yes. I, I, I see everything you're saying there. Um, and that's definitely in there. I think the movie, um, story wise, uh, is in early script and, 
I think that the music video structure helps it a great deal because it does allow them to operate like a musical where, and I think that's the frame of mind you have to be in to watch it. Uh, it's, it's a musical. It's, you have production number scene, production number scene, and that's how it's going to flow. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that those production numbers are going to take shortcuts to hit the gas pedal to tell the, as much of the story as possible in a very brief period of time. You know, you have the big showstopper, you know, music saw, music track that brings the house down and then intermission and everybody comes back and resets and stuff like that. And then you have the finale sort of thing. I think that the, the, that is basically that helps it because there are so many ideas that are not fully realized with these characters. There are these interesting sketches of supporting characters that are there. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, we go back to other directors. I think we, I think Footloose doesn't wind up, Flashdance <laughs> doesn't wind up becoming. <laughs> The big hit I'm just that it is. That in, by the way. Don't just you, FYI. Whatever. Who cares? I'm in. Per, you know. I can't shake it. I don't know why. I'm going to write it down on a piece of paper here right now. Hold on. Flash dance. It's a weird word. I know. Flash dance. Flash dance. Anyway, which is weird that that it has nothing to do with the flash. Anyway, but well, you know, it is. It is one of those things though where I think that it's. Other directors would have turned this into a two-hour, two-hour, ten-minute, more serious film, and it would have done its business, and people would have liked it, and then it would have gone away. It wouldn't have become the cultural phenom. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there are definitely shortcomings where it they they gloss over some of the those shortcomings with the production numbers, which again, musicals do too. And uh, I think that one of the biggest things that works in everything's favor is that uh, Jennifer Beals is just super charismatic. I mean, lightning Mm -hmm. in a bottle casting with her. This movie doesn't work without her period. Mm -hmm. Like she is the definition of linchpin performance and, and actress. This movie does not, work at all even even looking at the the montage even looking at the production numbers the dancing all the music all of that type of stuff man they lucked out when they found her because this was the only casting that was going to work they -hmm. needed her or somebody exactly like her for this to work and i just found out today by the way at the same time that this was going on she was finishing her degree at yale in american literature Wow, that's so. The woman man. is not a one-trick pony. She's got a backup plan. She has a degree from Yale in American literature. <laughs> that's a. I mean, no. I mean, just the idea that you're in this Hollywood production while you're going to school for something like wow, that's pretty amazing. That's yeah, pretty amazing. It is. Um, I, it's really interesting. I mean, this is definitely an '80s movie because this is a movie about things that would never happen but we're gonna pretend like they could happen mm-hmm. um you know i, I like know, she lives in a factory yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know ballerinas and what it takes to be one and 
it's something that you legitimately have to start from very early and you know it, it, it yeah um there are very the chance of this actually happening or I feel like there's like one in a million you know there are people where this kind of stuff happens but it's so small that yeah so it just well, feels like a lot of the 80s movies in which you know uh those type of things happen even though Interestingly enough, Christy, you uh, had mentioned in our outline, this is actually based off a of real life experience. So, you know, I had no clue that that was the, the case because that was a, uh, you know, th- again, that's where it's like this stuff that happens so rarely. Well, it makes sense that it would inspire a movie. But she didn't necessarily go on to become a ballet dancer professionally or anything it was just the fact that it was based on a real woman who was a welder by day and a dancer at night ah i see what that's where it stopped okay (laughs) okay Okay. well and 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 so you know i mean again it's like it's all of these kind of impossible like rocky is the same type of thing like it's the impossible story of the person who shouldn't be able to be the national you know heavyweight champion and yet becomes the heavyweight champion beyond the first all one. odds, right? So Not in the first one though. Well, that's true, but in the second one and and as we move forward. So, um so in in that it really fits the the genre that we're going for in the 80s. And I think in the 80s too there's this sense of like hope that lots of things are possible that we hadn't felt like were possible, especially in the the malaise of the 70s. And by this point we're starting to come out of that and and these type of movies, I think, make a lot more sense. And so, uh, you know, the story itself, Jonah, I think to me, you did a good job of kind of hinting at a lot of the things that just become, I would say, the reason this movie has like a 36% of Rotten Tomatoes, which is the storyline is very thin, um, especially with the supporting characters, you know, um, and there's just not enough time invested in the movie in that sense, we're more worried about the dance numbers and everything than we are everything else. Um, and, you know, so you you get these characters that are on the side where it's like we kind of spend just a little bit of time with them and then it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, and there's no real necessarily good resolution to any one of their stories other than Alex's, which, you know, makes sense. So I... I I can totally understand why, you know, I would probably, you know, a certain group would have responded to this movie when it first came out, and then it kind of just becomes this cult classic thing. Um, But, you know, coming to it now, for me, like, it it just doesn't hold a lot of weight, um, because the movie is just weightless when it comes to, like, I think, story. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely would agree with that. I think obviously there is some seeing it with rose colored glasses for me Um, and that it does have a weak spot when it comes to doing any of the character study. And that's something that really could have given it a lot more um, because I do think you have some interesting beginnings of story for Jeannie and Richie in particular. Um especially with Jeannie, you know, they even get into the fact that she is trying to go back to becoming a figure skater after being out of it for a while and that that's really hard and 
it really hits home, I think, when she says there isn't going to be a second chance for her. This was it. Um, So I do wish that they had gotten to spend mm-hmm. more time with her. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, what, what's interesting is we can sit here and I think rightly sort of peck at the shortcomings there with the story. Um, because I think they are real. They do exist, but time is a funny thing. People understand flash dance. Matt and I had never seen it, but we knew of it and we, we understood the references and we knew, you know, and so when it came up, it's like, Oh yeah, no, maybe we should see that sort of thing. Whereas, um, terms of endearment Academy award winner, number two that year, pretty much forgotten in the sands of time and stuff like that. So in a sense, you have that, that eternal question with a movie of, how are you going to like, you can't pick and choose what's going to be the remembered work. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it winds up being more important to your legacy to be relevant to the time you came out than an all time classic. Right. You can't overthink it sort of thing. And, um, I think that's, I think that's really interesting because even this is one of those ones where it it supports that idea that you can't just go by the critical scores on stuff because critics hated it, but it endures. People still know it. People still know Jennifer Beals' name. I still knew she was in this movie. I still knew music from the soundtrack. I still know that gray sweatshirt, even though I'd never seen it. Mm-hmm. It's that much of a cultural imprint. And... So it's like it's one of those things where it it makes it feel like the snake eating its own tail when you start criticizing a movie like this because it's like, well, you know, it's stuck around for this long. It's still stuck in your memory, even though you had never seen it. Right. Maybe it's more important just to sort of acquiesce that sometimes that stuff that we care about just doesn't matter to people at all. And when you were saying that, John, in particular about like some things just are relevant because of the time when they came out. It immediately made me think of all the John Hughes movies. I mean, that's immediately people go to those are quintessential eighties movies. It doesn't mean they're great pieces of film. It's just that he had a particular style. They all came out around the same time and starred a lot of the same people. And it was fully representative of the mainstays of the eighties fashion wise, um, and then actors and, you know, things going on at that time for teens as well. So it's just something that we always look back and go, oh, yeah, it you know, 80s movies are represented by things like Pretty in Pink, um, you know, 16 Handles, and then even the stuff like, um, oh, gosh, what was the other one? And, and Ferris Bueller. You know, they were all mm-hmm. very similar. And so I think that this is kind of in that same group. Like Ferris Bueller is in the National Film Registry. That's that's a recognized, important cultural landmark film. Like it's important mm-hmm. to history. It's preserved. It's like Star Wars or American Graffiti or Jaws or or Citizen Kane or The Godfather. Right. Is and I don't think Flashdance is in that. It is category. not okay. It is not. I I, uh, I did some research and it is not a part of the National Film Registry at the moment. You know, it could be. Maybe one day. Who knows? 
I wonder. I wonder would it be? Should it be? Is you know? I think that's a question we'll answer with our ratings. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, I did want to add. I, I and maybe I said it wrong. Um, I feel like this could be grouped along with those as quintessential eighties movies to me. Uh, I gotcha. But yeah, not, right, and not right. that they're like similar movies. I guess I gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think. Like when it comes to the idea, and I think you're right, Christy, in the sense of like, if you wanted a sense of what the movies of the 80s were like, you know, you might recommend something like Flashdance and Rocky Four, and, uh, you know, any of the uh, John Hughes films uh, to get a sense of some of the like the biggest trends in filmmaking and the things that kind of spurred. Of the, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning, right? This movie puts Simpson and Bruckheimer on the map, and it also puts a type of filmmaking on the map so that we do get things like Footloose, Purple Rain, Top Gun, you know, Rocky Four. All of these things uh, follow in many ways this type of this type of structure, which, you know, you can either do better or worse than this as as a template. And, you know, I I would say some of those movies took this template and ran with it and made much more of it than necessarily this does. And, and I think that's kind of what we're saying just when it comes to like some of the deficiencies we see in the storytelling. But if you want to be a cheeky jerk like me, you could say that this movie led to star Wars episode seven, the force awakens because, because hear me out here. This puts Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson on the map. Don Simpson dies of a heart attack earlier than Bruckheimer. You know, Bruckheimer's still with us. Bruckheimer goes on producing. Bruckheimer discovers Michael Bay, brings Michael Bay up. We become, we get the Michael Bay movies, and that's that's sort of like the next generation of, of the 80s movies sort of thing, the way they put everything together. Michael Bay winds up directing Armageddon, written by J.J. Abrams, which puts him on a career path that takes him all the way to Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. So in a sense, the Star Wars saga is changed forever by Footloose, which came out the same year as Return of the Jedi. You mean Flashdance. <laughs> Damn it, I did it again? <laughs> oh my God! Why? <laughs> oh. And you said it with such conviction, which made it even better. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> but I see well, what you're saying. It's a, it's six degrees of J.J. Abrams, right? Yeah, I just or, I, I or just, Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah, so um, I can't get yeah, you know, John, you you mentioned earlier, and don't worry, man, it happens to all of us, and it's yeah. going to be funny for the listeners. But yeah, uh, I hope so. I th so the cast here. You talked about the fact that this movie hinges on the on whether or not we enjoy Jennifer Beale. And I think you're 100% right in the fact that she's the thing that makes this movie, I would say, watchable, in that you're enjoying what she's doing, and she's just so effervescent in, in the role, you know, and so full of life. And she plays it at, like, just her devil may care attitude is perfect for this role of of a, a woman who is trying to find their way in the world 
I mean, she's just a simple girl trying to find her way in the universe. And, you know, she's got no one. And she is trying, she's doing everything she can to make it. And not just make it. She's not just trying to li- uh, to make it, but she's trying to live. Yeah, right? she has a dream. Uh, to truly live. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you both. I, I do think that this doesn't work without her. Um, I do, I do have one funny critique and I feel like it's one of those things where once I tell you, then you won't unsee it, but I don't know if either of you are going to immediately go rewatch Flashdance again right now. Um, but maybe, I don't know. The one thing that really bothered me about her performance, everything else I thought was fantastic, but the first time that she kisses the guy, it is weird. It just feels too aggressive. Like it's just it's it doesn't feel natural at all to me. And every time I see that kiss, it bothers me. <laughs> I, I can't say to, that I remember. It yeah, I'm all trying that. to recall yeah. it. Was it in her apartment after yeah, she in, put on the sweatshirt? Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. I know that. Yeah. I okay. I got yeah. it in my head yeah. now. All right. It yeah. was like someone that's never kissed somebody before. I was just like, what the heck is that? I just I got more hung up on the fact that later when she throws the rock through his window, you know, of course, we find out that, you know, spoilers for a movie that's 40 years old, <laughs> but um, we find out he wasn't, you know, going astray or anything like that. But the implication, she throws the rock, the light comes on, he comes running out. The implication really is that he was sleeping with his shoes and his slacks on and only his... uh his button-down shirt was off, and I'm like, "Well, that's that doesn't seem well, comfortable." I mean, he had time to like slide his shoes on, you know? They're just sliding. Oh, they were loafers. So, yeah. They were loafers. Yeah, they're just okay. real easy to get back on. So, that, so I'm yeah, not, and, yeah, and that'll he, save you a very valuable yeah. like five, six seconds. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he had just he was real tired from the evening, and you know, he had taken off his shirt and his shoes, and he just kind of lays it on the bed and finds himself asleep, and then a yeah. rock through his window, and it's like, what the heck, you know? So, yeah. and he had to special <laughs> order it. That's right, <laughs> but it was still. I mean, I guess by implication, it that. It was yeah. special ordered and replaced in 12 hours or less. I mean, that's yeah, a pretty it's, good service. It's very like, quick. <laughs> super quick. I'd pay um, extra for that. I won't lie. So I do have to ask you then, because other actors that they had considered for the part were such as Pierce Brosnan, Robert De Niro, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, John Travolta. Kevin Costner almost signed for this role because he was struggling as an actor at the time. Some would, would say he's still of... struggling as an actor, but I'm bum bum. No, he's not because uh, he's I'm, on Yellowstone, which is I'm fantastic. I'm just teasing. It's just a joke. It's I know. I'm, he can I'm make fun of me for how many times yeah. I say footloose in this episode. That's true. He can. <laughs> yeah. He can. Yeah. Can't John get it right? I mean, I know Kevin's listening to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Yes. Um, but uh, I... Some of those choices seem interesting. And I think maybe maybe would have been better. And then some of those I just can't understand in the role at all, like De Niro or Tom Hanks or John Travolta. Like none of them make sense at all. I would counter that Travolta does make sense because Travolta was still riding that first wave of heartthrob. That he had going on. I think did Staying Alive come out this year? Because Staying was, Alive, 
before this? Was it before? I oh, I want to say oh, staying alive. Like... I got I got to find this out right now. I'm so sorry. I, I was looking. I gotta, yeah, I got to find out if staying alive because staying alive, I I think is the one that sort of put him into hibernation for a few years to look who's talking. Yep, same year, eighty three. Oh, okay, there you go. There you go. Directed by Sylvester Stallone somehow, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, Travolta would have made sense. I could completely see a producer saying Travolta, that is sex appeal. He's a known quantity. You know, women want to be with him. Men want to be him. That's, you know, he's a, De Niro really seems like a producer putting together a list of like, well, we'll definitely get funding if we get De Niro in the role. You know, like. Yeah, that's if Brian De Palma directed this movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, never mind yeah. that the style does not fit De Niro at all. No. But see, what I think is interesting is that I think Pierce Brosnan or Richard Gere would have been better in the role because I think (gasps) Michael Michael? Norrie, he's he's okay, but I don't he has no charisma on screen. Like he just feels like to me personally, he felt kind of like cardboard in the role. Oh, and he's also in Yellowstone. So, I mean, I've seen him do things. He goes on to do. Uh, well, actually did a, a lot of stuff before this and then a lot way more in his career after this movie. But I, I actually thought he was good. And part of the reason that I like him better than at least any of these options is that I think you didn't want someone to overshadow Jennifer, who was a new yeah. actress. And sure, that makes I mean, sense. we yeah. said like she made the movie. So I think if you pair her with someone like Travolta, then she does get overshadowed in this. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, it's a great. Point. You're right. It's a great Thank point. You. Yeah. And I mean, who else would have this chest hair? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, Pierce Brosnan definitely would. Well, that's so, true. Okay. Yes. So Pierce Brosnan, I might it. have yeah. gone with instead, but <laughs> he's he's definitely got he's a he's a hairy guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's 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 always wearing a sweater. Anyway, um, you know, I, I I think what's interesting here too is that you know when I think of the rest of the cast, everybody else just kind of like fades to the background for me, except for the guy who plays Richie, because he's just so terrible at telling him. those jokes. On like, um, and I I. He's the one person where I felt like his storyline could have been so much more interesting if they have just invested a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I do think the idea of somebody thinking that, oh, I can go and make it in Hollywood and everything and not doing so is an interesting story to tell and realizing everything he really wants is here. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's like, the movie could have been 10 minutes longer and had just more of him. And I think it would have been just more rewarding for the audience. So, and maybe him winning Jeannie back. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he has the relationship too with Alex, which you can tell they're very close. She's like his sister. He's like her brother. They truly care for one another. It's it's a it's a sweet relationship. I love all that. It's just there's just not enough time to truly, I think, develop that in a way that 
really truly comes across on screen the way it should. And mm-hmm. that's fixed at the script level because you have to cut the other female character and turn it into a some kind of wonderful type of triangle where Richie is pining for Alex and Alex is in love with the other guy and Richie loses and has to be okay with it um, mm. because she's found her true love sort of thing. And the conflict then becomes, well, you know, he can, Richie can come at her and say, well, you just love him because of what he can do for you. Look, he can get you auditions at these things and everything. And that's something I can't do. And that's the only reason you don't want to have anything to be, you know, to do with me. That creates a whole lot more drama, and I'm willing to bet that one of those other directors that we mentioned probably would have had a rewrite to the script and gone down that road. So, yeah, maybe that's just that's my theory. Yeah, and I'm sticking to it. Um, I also just wanted to add that I thought it was cool all of the different styles of dance they managed to fit in this movie. It's almost like it's a commentary about what kinds of dance are out there. <laughs> because I mean they've got her learning how to break dance. They've got, you know, the avant-garde stuff in the bar. They've got ballet. I mean, you know, all the styles are represented. And of course you I since you're such a fan, uh Matt, are you aware of the break dancing the the thing with that uh because Beals had body doubles dance for oh, her yes. in certain things. Yes. And in the break dancing at the end, it was actually a, a male break dancer. Uh, Called Crazy up. Legs. Oh. Yep. All right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I, I, thought I that knew that, that was... going in. I knew yeah. that going in. And so I was watching for it. And if you watch for it, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's not her. Those yeah. are male thighs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, so. Yeah. The look and the feel of this movie was really interesting. And, you know, the the fact that she doesn't do the dancing is it just kind of like okay that that explains a lot of things about this film um maybe the the, just i don't know this movie also needs a seizure warning uh for the avant-garde dance in the bar where the light keeps flashing and like i legitimately couldn't watch that scene because it's so I, I just couldn't. I'm like, I'm going to have a seizure watching You're staring this. at it's, a strobe light. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it is, I mean, today you would be able to do face replacement and everything like that to help and all. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, w- it was just kind of strange to realize that so much of what happens on screen, she's not even doing. Um, not that Jennifer wasn't in shape and all those type of things. She was absolutely in incredible shape for this movie, but it just, yeah, it was just kind of weird. But that's mm-hmm. just, that's just sort of normal for movies up to like, it's true. I, I, you can call it the Tom Cruise effect where we're, we've now been spoiled to the point where it's like, Oh, my movie star is flying an airplane. I guess they know how to fly <laughs> yeah. an airplane now. Whereas right. back then, body doubles and singing doubles and stuff like that it was like yeah that's just yep. what you did i mean yeah yeah i mean yeah. audrey hepburn doesn't sing in my fair lady so yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah millie vanilli didn't sing at all and they had three billboard hits so there you go <laughs> <laughs> nice well uh, obviously i think the biggest thing that comes from this movie and johnny mentioned this earlier is really just the soundtrack becomes this it does become a phenomenon that lives 
in perpetuity now. I mean, it, it it's something to which has continued to live on. And so is it something that you guys, especially all these years later, do you still listen to at this point when those songs come on? Do you're like, oh, yeah, that song? Or is it more like, oh, yeah, that song? I think you know what my answer is. <laughs> I think I tipped my hand earlier. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, it John was and I it, are two different ends of the spectrum here. I'm like, yeah! And he's like, oh, God, not again. <laughs> I, I remember distinctly Return of the Jedi was my thing, even back then. And all of these girls were going around listening to Maniac. And I, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was like, no, leave me alone. Luke's lightsaber is green now. Arr! You know, like, that's just who I was. And you were so, walking around know. singing the Ewok song. Yes, I was, yep, actually. Yep, nub. Listen. <laughs> the the Bantha tracks uh, after Return of the Jedi had a glossary of Ewok ease, and so yes, I did learn all of the Ewok words in the uh, <laughs> in the finale. So you know, yes, uh, you know what I mean. The, the songs are you know eighty songs sort of thing. They're not they're not good or bad to me. They're just they're they're eighty songs, and that they were popular, and it's like they. They're not frequent rotation for me by any stretch. I mean, I think Giorgio Moroder, I, I love his work. Uh, he did a lot of great stuff in the 80s. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, look, I, I don't, I hate to play like the comparison game sort of thing, but like throw this soundtrack up against Rocky Four or Top Gun or Footloose, which apparently I can't get out of my brain. <laughs> those are soundtracks that I will, you know, those, those songs will come on in fairly frequent rotation through the year where it's like and yeah. you dance yeah well with the doors closed and the, and the <laughs> drapes drawn yes but yes yeah you I mean you don't want to scare the neighbors yeah well no i want they gotta pay if they want to see skills like that come on <laughs> <laughs> but i mean yeah like definitely if you compare it to something like top gun i mean i, I don't think it holds up the same way with the music to me as top gun does um but I still think it's fun. And I it, I mean, definitely the two title songs that got the most awards and everything, Maniac and What a Feeling, are still things that I love. Um, and, you know, remind me of happy things, I guess. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I the, will say of all, of all of the movies, What a Feeling, that's the one. Like yeah. that, if that comes on, I'm not changing the station or or the channel or anything like that. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. this I really like this one. Yeah, I I was gonna say the same thing. Like I I think that song is super catchy. I think I have to be more in the mood for for Maniac, um, for sure. Um, but I mean, you know, it's fascinating to me that there. And I guess this still happens in films, but it just feels like so many of those 80s movies, the music was so indelible. Mm -hmm. And it even still is today. You know, there. You mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Armageddon. And man, I remember when that movie came out and it was the Aerosmith song. And I remember being on a trip and like we listened to that song 4,200 times on the way from Texas to Colorado and back again, um, you know, because it was it, it was the song. Right. Yeah. 
Um, and, but there are, there are very few movies I feel like that I remember the music as much as I do from those films from the eighties for me. I mean, you know, um, there are a few again from the nineties, um, like a, uh, Armageddon or I, I, you know, um, I do think Batman forever, uh, or, you know, something of that nature, but it, it it's just not as like almost like reach for it kind of thing as much as those those eighty songs are. And so I, I think that's one of the things that makes a movie like this have staying power. It's it's almost just like people have the nostalgia for the music in it as much as they do the film itself, which I think Top Gun is a perfect example of that, where it's just like that movie is so represented by the music that plays in it, like yeah. a Footloose, that you just can't get away from it. And then you hear that song, Danger and you're Zone. thinking of the movie, yeah. you know? Yeah. Danger um, Zone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Danger Zone. <sighs> but like, you know, even though Maniac, I would say, usually is more of a joke at this point than um, what a feeling it is that thing that just continues to get stuck in people's head. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I was plaguing Matt with different TikTok videos of people doing um, like she was (laughs) dancing in the rain to maniac on TikTok. Wow. And this is recent. TikTok ain't been around that long. That's that is Mm -hmm. something else. I think we need to start a trend and uh, get people to dance to uh, some of the stuff that that uh, came about in other movies too. Let, let's yeah, let's subvert the trend. Let's <laughs> subvert the trend. And and that's the thing that I think is so cool about this movie too is like that first dance that you actually see is so famous now. It's been repeated over and over and over again. The scene where she pulls the cord and the water splashes. And like that was another thing I was spamming that with was the Deadpool poster of uh, him mm-hmm. being covered in shells. <laughs> and I personally like the Garza Flip one that they did with her as a Twi'lek much better. Uh, yeah, I think that was yeah. was classic. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, we have talked, which I am surprised for almost an hour here about. <laughs> Flashdance, and so I can't wait to see what our ratings are going to be. So we'll start with you, John. What is oh, your no. rating for Flashdance? I feel like I can't look in Christy's direction when I say this. <laughs> be honest, it's okay. It's a one star movie. I'm sorry. <gasps> That's it's a one, one star. Star. One star. This movie's terrible. It's just not good. Oh. I understand and respect everything that you said I, I i i respect you i i i know why it's important we all have movies like this where the other person just for whatever reason i i let's put it this way as soon as i saw jo- joe esterhouse's name my reaction was uh-oh i literally said the word uh-oh while i was watching the movie and i saw esterhouse's name i was like oh boy because you thought of showgirls right I thought of all of Esther House's movies, <laughs> and I just got to say, if uh, I just didn't care for this at all. I think that Jennifer Beals is great. I, I think she's wonderful. I think she's too good for this movie. 
Like, I do. I, I think she's the whole reason to watch it. And that's mm-hmm. the only reason it gets a star. Not the dancing? No, not the dancing. Not the Aww. dancing. I, I got to go with the one. I'm so sorry. I feel bad that I, I rated it that way, but I got to be honest. It, you, it not two one. for Jennifer? I mean, geez. She got the one. So there you go. <laughs> Nobody died. That's the one. Remember? <laughs> no, that was. Well, the thing is, that was half a star. And I okay. had to I had to retire that one. Okay. I'll tell you the story. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. I'll let it go. That's my story. What and I'm about sticking you, to Christy? It. Because I am actually fascinated to see where you end up with this movie. Because I, I, I feel like, and I think John can uh, agree with this. I feel like you've been very honest with the way in which this movie does have some deficiencies. Um, and so I am just kind of wondering where you end up falling with the film. So I think that there's two different ways to look at this. I think for one, if you look at it purely from nostalgia, then obviously my rating is higher than it would be just looking at it critically. And I think that's the two big things you see with this when you look it up in Wikipedia. Like you said, Matt, the the critical reviews are that it's, one of Roger Ebert's most hated movies of all time, which I don't understand. Um, but the popular reviews were that it was the third highest grossing film of the year for 1983. So there's clearly a disparity there of two completely different groups of people. And that's kind of how I feel internally about it as well. Like if I look at it as what type of film is it compared to other great film out there? Yeah, it's not like, the greatest film I've ever seen or, you know, piece of script writing I've ever seen. But I think that it has a lot of heart to it. And obviously I saw it at a good time in my life where I kind of saw myself some in the characteristics that you see in the title character um, of like, you know, not coming from a lot, but trying to make it somewhere, you know? Um, So I think that I rate it a little bit higher just because I love it and because it gives me that feeling of hope every time I watch it and I watch it a lot. Um, I give it a three out of five um, because I think it still has a lot of good to it, even if it's not, you know, like a Casablanca. A Casablanca it is not. Um, (laughs) I know. My favorite movie of all time. Um, but you know, it, it was interesting as we were talking about the film, because for, for me, when I, I first went and rated this on Letterboxd after watching it, I had given this a, a two and a half, but after our conversation, it did go down to a two. So I'm the ah. stepping stone between both of you. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where I think that when I look at it through a very critical lens, yeah, it's not a very good movie, but that there is this thing to which it's hard to explain, but it's stayed with people, right? And it's become a movie which people can reference without even, uh, you know, and necessarily having seen it. You know, I, um, I was I was thinking of other movies like this, that, and, and I was thinking of one that kind of came out uh, when I was younger, but has become like this, I think it, which is like 
Starship Troopers. It's not a great movie, but like so many people have like seen it and you can reference it and people kind of know it. And it's just this this like weird kind of cult hit movie that just became something that people know. Right. Like, mm-hmm. John, you also mentioned a movie that it's not good, but you can make jokes about it and everybody knows it is showgirls. Right. Like um, so. And yeah, this is. This, I don't think this is a great movie, but I can 100% understand why why people at the time responded to it and that it just became something that took on a life of its own. And part of that has to do with the fact that I think the way that, as we mentioned, you know, music and a movie can kind of just transcend everything else. And so... Yeah, I mean, is is this is my favorite movie? Of course not. Um, you know, am I glad that I kind of checked off that 80s movie box of a movie I hadn't seen yet? Absolutely. And so uh, now it's time of the show where we do some recommendations. And so, Christy, what would you like to recommend to everybody this week? Well, I have a doozy of a thing to recommend this week, and it's going to crack you up if anyone actually dares to look it up. Um my husband and I, um, for whatever reason, have really gotten into musical comedians, is how I'm going to say it. Um, so there's these guys on YouTube that do comedy, but it's also set to music. And uh, he introduced me to a guy named Tom Cardy, C-A-R-D-Y, Um FYI, it's not kid-friendly, but it's hilarious. He is an Australian with a very large mustache who does stupid songs about stupid things, and it's just really funny. Um, so, yeah, I, I recommend checking out Tom Cardi, um, and if you want something else similar, my personal favorite, a little bit more than him, is, uh, I think you pronounce it, Mark... Rebillet, um, R-E-B-I-L-L-E-T. He's French. Um, and he is a DJ that does a similar kind of thing. So, yeah. Musical comedians. Nice. Cool. Nice. Cool. What about you, John? You know, uh, I, I could uh, take the easy way out and say uh, Top Gun Maverick because I saw that the day after Flashdance and boy, was that a palate cleanser because that's a great film. I highly recommend <laughs> it for anybody to go catch it. Um, definitely a big screen experience. But there was another movie that I revisited recently uh, and I I want to toss it out there if anybody hasn't seen it. If you want to see something that's fascinating as a Similar in intent as being an ode to the works of the past um, would be to check out John Milius's uh, Conan the Barbarian from 1982. Uh, it was restored, sort of, I think, not too long ago. Or um, and is this the one with Schwarzenegger? Is, yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but it is a uh, it's a pretty fun movie to watch and pretty interesting and a really great um i think sort of a, a counterpoint to you know sort of the like milius comes up at the same time as spielberg and lucas and de palma and scorsese and all of that 
but he definitely had his own style and he's doing his own homage to the past here. And I, I think that Conan the Barbarian from 1982 is definitely a really interesting one to check out. Is it great cinema? That's for you to decide. But it is a I, I think it retains a ton of fun. It's don't and don't watch Conan the Destroyer. Whatever you do, don't ever watch that movie. It's or I'll maybe watch, Red Sonia. Yeah. Or it, Sheena. I'll watch, yeah, I'll watch um I'll watch Flashdance a thousand times before I watch Conan the Destroyer. But Conan the Barbarian remains a <laughs> sentimental favorite. So check that out. Uh, I'm going to back up John here because as this show comes out, you probably have one more day to go see Top Gun Maverick in the large screen cinema cinemas uh, because the next day uh, Jurassic World Dominion is going to release and Top Gun Maverick deserves to be seen on the biggest screen you can possibly see it in. Okay, I'll see go it in an IMAX theater uh, because you get the full effect uh, and you know, I went back and I was rewatching a bunch of Star Wars movies, and the movie that Top Gun Maverick reminded me of was Solo, a Star Wars story, where I just had a big goofy grin on my face the entire film. I couldn't stop smiling because it was just so good. So I'm going to recommend you go and watch Solo, a Star Wars story, and I'm going to recommend you do it on Disney Plus, so they realize. Solo Star Wars Story, yeah, it's a movie that people want to see more of, so go do that, and uh, maybe we'll get more, uh, you know, Solo 2 action, so. Here, here. Make Solo 2 happen! Yeah. Yes! I wish, well, I wish. John, if people do want to catch up with you uh, and see what other bad recommendations like Conan the Barbarian you have, where can people find you? <laughs> Bro, seriously? <laughs> wow. That's hurtful. I, I don't know what you're talking about here. I, I saw you making your face and everything like that. I was, because it's not a good movie. <laughs> oh, completely disagree. Completely disagree. Conan the yeah. Barbarian, come on. Anyway. We'll, uh, we'll let the listeners decide. So They already have. Everybody agrees with me. And they can agree with me <laughs> online. I'm Castle Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Go find me wherever I am. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party co-hosting two two shows. Uh, one of them is called House Lights. where we Flash Dance. I was actually going to make a footloose joke, but it's even funnier that you dropped Flashdance trying to say footloose after I was saying footloose to try to say Flashdance. That was the joke. I'm so confused. And the other one that I co-host is called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast that I co-host with Matt over there on the Nerd Party. Which I just want to plug, like, you guys walk through all the John Hughes films, you know, yep. so, and we talked a lot about those. So if you... Do want to to hear that? I definitely recommend House Lights. That's a, it's a lot of fun. Flash Thank dance. you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. And Christy, <laughs> when people aren't trying to figure out what the heck we're talking about now, where can people find you? You can find me on um, Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And then when I'm not here, I do a show. Well, or I did a show. I guess I should probably do it again, to say that I still do it, um, Sabres and Spells and the Skywalking Through Neverland Network Skynet uh, with my friends Amanda and Teresa. Um, but that's it. Well, uh, you can also, uh, you know, find me all over the place on social media under the name MattRushing02. Uh, and so Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, any of those places, I'd love it if you'd follow me and 
let me know what you think of the show and um, where I'm wrong, because, you know, that's really, let's be honest, that's what Twitter is for, and social media is just to tell people how they're wrong. Uh, and you can also find me uh, here on the network doing a lot of shows. Uh, John and I uh, do a couple of bonus shows here in the in the 602 Club feed with uh, Assembling Avengers and Snyder Cuts. Both will be back because Snyder has new movies coming out. And we uh, were even talking today, actually, as uh, before we recorded we are going to be back with Assembling Avengers um, sooner rather than later. Uh, it's a very busy summer for us, though, so please just let us let us have a little bit of break before we dive into the never-ending Phase 4. Uh, you can also find me here doing a lot of different shows. So I've got The Orb, Literary Treks, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. Saddle Up is about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And The Artificial Tango is about Star Trek Picard. And then when I wasn't doing aggressive negotiations on the Nerd Party Network with John Mills, I was doing a completed show with Drea Kaufman called Owl Post. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But thank you so much for joining us and go be a maniac you hear